Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 88, Laying Down the Law, Part 1. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This episode is the first part of a two-part episode, and I am going to be turning my attention to comic books once again. Specifically, I'm going to once again tackle comic books in a non-superhero genre, which I've done quite a bit of in the past. And in this case, it's going to be comics featuring the men and women of law enforcement. I did a little bit of this back in the 80s years of DC Comics series when I covered the Jerry Conway, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, series Cinder and Ash, although that was more of a private investigator story than a straight-up cop comics. So this time I decided to go with straight-up cop comics. Comics starring police officers, detectives, and other cops and robbers types of stories, well, they're as old as the medium itself, with one of the most notable Golden Age comics probably being Lev Gleason's Crime Does Not Pay, which was one of the most famous true crime comics ever produced and spawned a host of imitators through the 40s and into the 50s until it ran up against the seduction of the innocent. This genre would survive Frederick Wertham and his call to action, and uh, we have some great stuff coming out since the 1950s, especially within the last 20 years or so. But in the late 80s and early 90s, the big two's commitment to comics that were beyond the purview of their usual superhero affair was on the wane. Although they did take their chances in other genres, DC, for instance, created entire imprints of publishing everything from horror and science fiction to other odds and ends. And at separate points in 1987 and 1992, both DC and Marvel would publish police-centric miniseries. That's what I'm going to be covering in these episodes. This time around, I'm going to be taking a look at DC's Underworld, which was published in late 1987. And the next episode, I'm going to head over to Marvel in 1992 for Cops the Job. I'm going to be used doing my usual recap and review and do my best to see if these miniseries hold up after all this time and if they hold up well against the steady diet of cop shows that the American television viewer has been consuming more or less since, well, I want to say the 70s, but it's probably even earlier than that. I mean, these are some of the those ingrained type of stories that we all seem to remember seeing even if we've never really watched that many procedurals right so let's see how it's been done in the comics and let's see how dc did it and we'll start after this break when you talk about comics does it sound something like this look you can't put the superman number 77s with the 200s they haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet and you uh you can't put the number 98s with the 300s Lori the mars hasn't even been introduced 
Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robison, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. is a four-issue miniseries that was published in the fall of 1987 and had cover dates of December 1987 and January through March of 1988. It also had a price of a dollar uh, back then. And what I find interesting about this, by the way, is that there were a handful of regular DC titles and not direct-only books printed on Baxter paper like uh, the New Teen Titans that were a dollar as opposed to 75 cents, which was the going rate for your average issue of, say, Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman. I looked at Mike's Amazing World and saw that Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Hawkman, Sergeant Rock, Tales of the Teen Titans, and Warlord were all a dollar back then, while the other books were 75 cents. There wasn't any difference in the page count. Uh, Secret Origins was a $1.25 book, but that was a 48-page book instead of a 32-page book. But I did notice that with more or less within six months, most of these books were canceled. The exception to this was Warlord. That was at 125 when the Underworld came out, but it was canceled at 133, so that's about eight months. I guess DC figured that those books were selling so poorly that they decided to get what money they could out of them. And perhaps they didn't think Underworld would attract a huge audience, so that's why they priced it at a dollar, because the Superman-based miniseries World of Krypton was also on sale at this point, but that sold for 75 cents. All right, that's enough about comics pricing in the late 1980s, so let's get to the series. The creative team on the entire series is as follows. Creator-writer Robert Lauren Fleming, designer and artist Early Cologne. Issue number one was colored by Adrian Roy. Issues two through four by Jerry Serpe. It was lettered by John Workman, and the editor was Len Wein. 
Now this four-issue miniseries is different than most miniseries that we're used to seeing, which is a single story throughout the book's run featuring the same character or characters. With Underworld, Fleming, and Cologne put together what's almost best described as a collection of four short stories. They have a consistent cast of characters through the four issues, but they're not directly connected in that they continue one another. They're more like episodes of an anthology or a case-of-the-week type of television show. Now, as where I usually summarize an entire miniseries and do the review, I'm actually going to take this issue by issue because while there are common elements, the core stories are one-and-dones. Issue number one is titled Prowess. It opens on the Valdez State in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where Heroica Valdez is skeet shooting with her father, Esty, a self-made millionaire and proud father. We then cut to Mackey's Shamrock Tavern in Jersey City, where a guy named Clover wins big in a poker game against some mafia types who are trying to shake his father down, and his father is the Mackey of Mackey's Tavern. Uh, they want to get protection money out of him, and after he collects his winnings, Clover drives the Mafia guy's car through the window of the bar as a way to send them a message not to mess with him or his father. They say they'll be back, and a confident Papa Mackey says, uh, bring your friends. Next, we're on a Formula One racetrack where Clip Chapel is racing and loses for the third time in a row, but seems happy about it because he just simply loves to race. We then cut to New York City at night, where a souped-up car is being chased by both Clip and Heroica, who are on duty in a police cruiser. And we get a narration that it says, I have a secret. It's not a silly one either, like the time I broke the cellar window on purpose, and didn't tell anyone until I was 26. The secret is the big one, the black one. The one that I can snuggle all the way to my grave. Right. That secret. You're thinking about yours now. This comic book explores the underworld. It's about crime and punishment. It's about life and death. But mostly, it's about your secret. Your underworld. And mine. The narration then goes on to say, The city has a secret too. You can feel it at night when the lights come on. It feels like magic. Hiroka and Clip chase the prowler as they call him through the streets and try to get a roadblock set up, but he evades them and they cancel it. Somebody built St. Patrick's Cathedral, the narrator says. Somebody created Rockefeller Center. Some person. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe the secret doesn't have so much to do with the lights as it does with the fact that there is a person behind each one of those lights and behind each person is a life. Good times and bad. Friends, enemies, lovers, relations, thoughts. For every twinkle in that twilight skyline, a billion thoughts. There's the mystery. There's the beauty. Secret thoughts. We are then at the 8th Precinct the next day, where Clover is dismayed at getting a rookie partner, and his sergeant says that he's already demolished three patrol cars, two fire hydrants, and a cocker spaniel, and therefore he needs to have someone drive for them. Today's assignment is to assist at Times Square Station. His new part is Xaviera, a rookie who is a newly defected Russian gymnast who Clover thinks doesn't speak much English, something she plays along with. Down in the subway of Jackson Klebold, who has been commuting this way for 17 years and seems to know all the tricks and scams people pull, except for the one that gets his wallet stolen. Katie Fong gets her foot caught between a graffitied subway car and the platform as Jackson tries to help her and yells for people to call for help. 
Katie's friend pickpockets him. Clover and Xaviera chase the two of them. Clover pursues the guy while Xaviera pursues Katie, and Xaviera's gymnastics career comes in handy when she flips over her and gets the upper hand. Clover is not so lucky. He's he thinks he has the guy and gets flipped over into the hot dog cart outside the precinct, and then he almost gets hit by a taxi, which knocks over a fire hydrant. At the very least, he recovered the wallet. We then see the third person in this caper, Darla, run down an alley where she is chased by Clip and Heroica. She pulls a knife and slashes Heroica, but is eventually talked down and not hurt. Our narrator tells us that this is where part of Darla's story ends, and as we see the press interview the cops involved with the chase, he says, This isn't my story, and it isn't yours, and it isn't Darla's. This is a story with just an ending. It belongs to the cops. This feels like a pilot episode to a television show, and as I was reading it, I found myself wondering if this series possibly came out of a pitch for a cop show. I couldn't find any evidence of that online because a Google of Robert Lauren Fleming and Underworld only came up with sites selling the issues, various wiki pieces, and a couple of reviews, uh, notably DC in the 80s, which compared the series to both Hill Street Blues and 21 Jump Street, which are among the more notable police shows of the 1980s. Fleming takes his time to introduce us to a diverse character uh, cast of characters. Uh, each of whom has a distinct personality, but also they don't take too much time getting to us to the police action. These four people are cops, and it's important to note that they're not detectives or any other sort of high-ranking officers. They're beat cops who are assigned an area to patrol on their shift. So we're not likely to get a four-issue miniseries where two detectives are tracking down a serial killer or taking down a drug cartel like This Is Miami Vice. We're going to get purse snatchings and straight-up street crime. We're going to get crowd control. We're going to get, you know, uh, mundane stuff. And that's what we get here. We get a pit-pocketing that all four characters get dragged into by virtue of the fact that there are three people actually committing the crime. In later issues, we'll get more personal stories of the people who are committing the major crime in that particular issue. But here, they exist to introduce our cop characters. So this is not a huge, life-changing day in the life of these cops. It's just another day on the job. And I can appreciate that because there are way too many movies and television shows about police officers that do take the, this is the day the life will change forever approach. Here, we get a requisite amount of action to see that each of the personalities that Fleming sets out to show us carries over to the action on the street. Clover, it's pretty well established, is kind of a klutz and is going to be our comic relief. Clip, who races for the thrill of it, is an adventure seeker, and we see that in his zeal when he pursues the prowler through the city streets. Heroica comes off as patient and compassionate. She, after all, talks a knife out of a girl's hand while Clip has his piece drawn and could have very well shot her. Xaviera is the least developed of the four, as we don't get a backstory behind rumors that she got her job because of a special relationship with the commissioner, and that she was a Russian gymnast who defected to the United States. Fleming does a great job of setting everything up in this issue, as I mentioned, and it's helped along tremendously by Ernie Colon's artwork. Colon is an artist who works steadily between 1968 and the late 1990s and seems to have a long career doing sword and sorcery books in addition to some stents in the Legion of Superheroes. 
I personally know him from his work on the Amethyst miniseries and ongoing from the early 80s, and I always thought the artwork in that one was one of the major selling points of the book, even when the stories may have lacked from time to time. Here he captures the grit of 1980s New York City in a way that sort of channels Frank Miller but doesn't ape Miller like other artists might. In fact, longtime Miller collaborator Klaus Janssen was doing the art and coloring on The Punisher at this point, so there is something contemporary to compare Cologne's artwork to. Yes, there are a few times when I thought that Cologne had probably read Dark Knight and thought, oh, that's what I want to put in this book, but whereas that wouldn't work if it was, say, Amethyst, it works here because it's a style that aligns perfectly with its subject matter. Plus, this is pretty contemporary to The Dark Knight Returns, not, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, so I see where that influence would have been immediately felt. Cologne also has a good eye for detail, and that's what actually takes this comic beyond having it be a simple rehash of Miller or Klaus Janssen. In the subway pickpocket scene, for example, he has the crowd surrounding the crime see what's going on, and both react to and not react in a way that's natural. There's like this natural hesitation to not want to get oneself involved, so the kids get away with the crime. Uh, one slight mistake or misstep in the issue that I do see is, is a continuity gaffe, uh, and I, what I mean by is continuity within the story. The girl known as Darla, who's the one who pulls the knife on Eroica, is clearly the girl who fakes getting her foot caught between the train and the platform, but the narrator has her labeled as Katie Fong, who's the girl that Xaviera cuffs. It's a little mistake that doesn't take away from the story, but I will say that I had to go back and double-check that upon reviewing the issue. But let's move on to issue number two, which is called Keep Away. Now, it really has one case for characters that goes through the entire book. It's that of Jackson Vale, a divorced father who has kidnapped his daughter and is hiding her in a room within the subway tunnels. We open with him teaching the girl, whose name is Stacy, and who is probably about five or six years old, to shoot anyone who comes into their hideaway. Once again, we have the narrator, who by this point is, I think we're supposed to believe, is Robert Lauren Fleming, doing kind of a metatextual narration. Here's the opening of the issue. Welcome to Underworld. When I was a kid, I used to hide in my bed under the covers. It wasn't that I wanted to be safe. It was that no one could see me there. I could, see, I could be myself. Then I got older, and it seemed silly to hide under the covers. So instead, I listened to my stereo alone in the dark. No one could see me, and I could be myself. I'm an adult now. I have responsibilities. I live in the real world. I work as a writer. I script this comic book. It's where I hide now. It's where I can be myself. This is one of my characters, one of my hiding places. His name is Jackson Vale. He's hiding too. Vale hides beneath the skin of the city. Strip away the skin and circulatory system and you'll eventually hit muscle. That's where you'll find Vale. But I don't think you'll find him. That would mean looking beneath the surface. During this narration, we see Vale heading to Grand Central Station, which is above the tunnel where he keeps Stacy. He heads to a gun store where he is a regular customer. He pays cash for a new rifle, and then he walks out into broad daylight. He spots someone in a car watching him, and he takes off running. Eventually, he runs over into and over Clover, who has just left a diner where he, Clip, Heroica, and Xaviera have been eating lunch. Heroica sees that Vale has dropped a gun, 
and is now running, so they pursue him. Ziviera manages to flip herself over the hood of a taxi cab that almost hits her, and she gets the drop on him, cuffing him and arresting him. She wants to know who Stacy is, since she yelled her, he yelled her name, but he decides not to give any information. Vale is arrested for carrying a concealed weapon, which is the revolver beneath his shirt, and they are approached by another cop named Kurt, who is from the 10th Precinct, who says they were just about to collar him. Vale says Kurt is lying and that he wants to take Stacy away from him. Kurt's partner punches Vale in the gut, and even though Hiroka protests, Kurt says Vale has abducted a young girl and was hoping they'd lead him to her, and their arresting him made things more difficult. They load Vale into the paddy wagon and start needling him. Then they uncuff him. Vale gets in a good shot on both Kurt and his partner and breaks free of the paddy wagon. Of course, this was a ruse to get Vale to run so that Kurt could follow him, and Kurt says to the other guy, First we follow Vale to the girl, and then we kill him. She's my little girl. Mine. We cut to Stacy holding a revolver and pointing it at a picture of Kurt, saying that he isn't her daddy. Then we pick up again with Vale, who is running through the streets and trying to make his way back to Stacy. Kurt and the cops are in the van, and, ch and they're chasing him, as are our uniformed officers. Clip and Ziviera, who are in the same cruiser, catch up to the van and apprehend its driver and Kurt's partner, and I guess we're supposed to believe that they were either impersonating cops or they were detectives working outside the law? But Kurt's not with them. By now, the cops have figured it out, and we more or less have as well. Kurt is Vale's ex-wife's new husband. Dear Jack, the note had said, our narrator tells us. It seemed to him a cruel way, a dishonest way, to open the letter that was to close the door on his happiness forever. Dear Jack, it had said, I've taken the Buick. I'll return it next week when I come back for the rest of my things. I don't love you anymore. I'm in love with someone else. I want a divorce so I can marry him. I've talked to Stacy about this. We both have, and we think she understands. Ron wants to adapt her. Please don't be sad, Linda. That's what the note had said. That is what Linda had really meant. Jackson Vale was getting a crash course in reading between the lines. Go to hell, Jack, the note had meant. You're already dead, and you don't even know it yet. You don't have a wife, and you don't have a daughter. And don't be sad, because you don't get to have emotions either. Signed, Linda. I've never m even met you before, Vale. P.S. Just who are you, anyway? Vale makes his way into Grand Central Station and toward his hideout, all the while being followed by Clover and Heroica as well as Kurt. He finally gets to Stacy, tells her to stay by his side, and when the two cops get there, he begins firing from his rifle. Clover is shot, and they head for cover so they can hopefully not completely be sitting ducks. Vale heads out to find them, not aware that Kurt is near the tunnel, and then he is caught by surprise by Heroica, who pulls her gun and gets him to drop his. Kurt reaches Stacy and tells her that she's supposed to be with him, then says he's not going to punish her, but will punish her daddy. He then picks up one of Vale's rifles and gets Vale in his sight, saying he's going to take the guy out and then take out two cops. A shot rings out and we see that Vale, who ducked, is okay. It's Kurt who is dead, and Stacy is holding the gun. She says, he didn't belong here, so I shot him in the head. Vale says, you're a good girl, Stacy. You're daddy's girl, aren't you? Aren't you? And she replies, yes, sir. I I'm daddy's girl, and I'm just like you.
If there's a strength to this issue, it is the artwork. I'm going to see the same words of praise that I had for Ernie Cologne with the first issue because he is good at drawing the action and creating the tension needed for key scenes. The scene at the end, for instance, uses nine panels on a page of Kurt grabbing and aiming the rifle and about to shoot but being shot. But we don't know it's him who has been shot until the next page because the bang of the shot is veiled ducking. So Cologne does a bit of a bait and switch that works very well. Plus, he has this guy, Kurt, who is supposed to be kind of a crooked villain of sorts, look very much like Clark Kent, and I can't help but think that that's on purpose, and it totally works. The whole story of the issue, eh, it's pretty much of its time, and only works so much, probably because I don't think we get a real enough motivation for why Vale has kidnapped his daughter away from his wife and her new husband. I mean, it's obvious that it's a type of missing persons case where one parent does abduct the kid from the other, but he's got this crazy sort of survivalist thing that's going on. It's it's kind of like he's a few degrees below Frank Castle, but Frank Castle is a Vietnam vet, so there's a whole reason for his vigilantism. The down-in-his-luck vet thing wouldn't work here, though, because it would come off as a total cliché. And I have to say, there's not enough motivation for it to be this extreme. Maybe a story about how they move from place to place. Maybe he still purchases the gun because he knows he has to protect himself. There's just something incomplete about this, even though I know why he's kidnapped his daughter. As far as the cops, our officer's crew involvement does come organically, and I like that. Grand Central Station is about three or four blocks west of the Times Square subway station where we were last issue. And this is a Times Square in the 1980s where it was full of porno theaters and the criminal element. So that it makes sense that Vale would purchase a gun from a store near there and run afoul of our four cops. Fleming also does a good job with the time frame, making the story take place over the course of an afternoon, which is what he did in the last issue. I do like this moment in the day of a life of story type we have going throughout this series so far, whether it be the day in the life of a few cops, a criminal, or the city. I just felt that the way this particular story was done was a little clunkier and a little too outlandish than the one from last issue. Issue 3 is titled Saving Grace. It opens with a depressed-looking man making his way through the city, a group of homeless men drinking and pouring some out for departed friends, Ed Koch giving a press conference where he just demonstrates a new way to clean graffiti off of subway cars, and a man entering a porno theater thinking about someone named Margaret, although we're not sure who that is. Our narrator chimes in with the phrase, Let me take you down. A phrase we'll read a few times throughout the issue. He takes us through scenes we just described until we are with the depressed gentleman from the beginning of the issue who's yelling that he's all alone. We'll come back to him in a moment. But first, we're with the 8th Precinct, where Clip is bragging that he has ringside seats to the big championship boxing match tonight. He then reminisces about his dad, who was a championship boxer and how he used to see him fight all the time. He and Heroica then walk out into the streets and are almost run over by the Prowler. They get into the car, and they give chase. Let me take you down, 
The narrator begins again, taking us to St. Patrick's Cathedral, where a movie called Nothing Sacred about a priest who kills with 38 nuns is being filmed. Zaviera actually has a bit part as a cop, and she, he, she's being directed while Clover does crowd control, and he has to contend with a little kid and his toy gun. The scene wraps, and the kid wanders off into the streets where he is almost run over by the Prowler, but he's saved at the last minute by the depressed man from earlier in the issue, and not by Clover, who trips in a pothole and finds himself getting run over by the Prowler. Thankfully, all that happens is his clothes are shredded, and he's otherwise fine. Then our departed character takes out a gun and puts it to his own head. Before he can kill himself, though, Hiroka shoots it out of his hand, and they take him away. Much later, Clip is still excited for the boxing match, but his night is interrupted by the fact that our depressed man, whose name is William Grace, is standing on a ledge and threatening to jump. Clip runs to the building, gets himself out on the ledge, and then talks to him, much to the chagrin of the priest and other cops who were there to help. He eventually gets William to come inside, but in the end, he does miss the boxing match to spend time with this man. Now, I like this issue better than issue two, even though this relies on a trope that is common in so many cop stories, the guy on the ledge. I think it's because Fleming takes a little bit of time to get us inside the heads of a couple of our officers to show what their motivations are, in addition to getting some insight into the despair of William Grace, who is depressed and suicidal because he just lost his father. Clover and Xaviera are part of this story in a comic relief type of capacity, which is what Clover seems to specialize in. He's getting harassed by the kid and the mother seems to have no respect for him while his partner is being a movie star. In fact, the director gets the whole incident with the Prowler on film and can't be happier because it saved him the money he would have used to shoot an action scene. But the two characters who get more serious moments are Hiroka and Clip. Clip's the main cop in this story this time around, but Hiroka has a moment where she is aiming her gun at William Grace and thinks about her own father, who wasn't outwardly affectionate but still showed that he loved her. She thinks about this right before firing her pistol, and Cologne illustrates it masterfully. He has detail on facial expressions and emotions that lesser artists would not have gone for or would have made too comical. Then later on, Fleming has Clip talk to this guy in a way that has him being honest as a character. It seems that the priest and the guy's therapist are being too dismissive, basically telling the guy, hey, forget about your dad. Clip whose father is dead and whom he is thinking about the entire time because he is excited for this boxing match that evening, tries his best to be honest with him and says he won't get personally involved, but cares about him because he's another human being. But then he decides not to go to the match because he doesn't want to be as dismissive as the others were. And while we don't see him with William, it's implied that he gave up the seat to see if William was okay. And I think that honestly saves the story from being too schmaltzy or too maudlin in its ending, as does the fact that Clip doesn't mention his dad when he's talking to William, which he very well could have. I like how Fleming is giving us small character beats through the conversations that these characters are having, and the occasional inner monologue without going through pages and pages of backstory as a way to connect the cop to the other characters. He's doing his best to keep this whole piece as more verite than a plot. And while it doesn't always work, see the previous issue for instance, it works here. I won't say much else about Cologne's art because 
I'd be simply repeating what I said, except to say that he draws heroic in a way that makes her look naturally pretty and yet smart and tough, which in this age of comics is not always easy to pull off. Plus, there's a running gag through these issues where guys pass in front of a poster for a lady cop porno movie, and I thought I'd mention the reference. But let's wrap up the series with issue number four. This one is called Getting Steven, and we open with a priest walking into his office while our narrator says, I'm the priest of this story. I've named him Brian Doyle, but now you know that he's really me. By that, I mean, of course, that Brian is an aspect of my personality, a part of my life, a very large part. I'm showing you my underworld, I'm revealing my heart of hearts, but I'm doing it my own way. Writing is my religion. I'm the priest of all my stories. Brian has a loaded gun and he leaves his office. Another priest, Father Clark, enters the office and notices that Brian is gone. He drops the newspaper that he's holding and we see a headline that says, Priest's brother massacres family. At the 8th precinct, our usual cast of cops encounters the press and Clover sees Father Clark. Stephen, the murderer and brother of Brian, was a friend of his in high school. And as he walks among the press and keeps them at bay, Clover sees Brian lurking among the crowd. Brian turns down an alley and is approached by two muggers. Clover finds them and pulls the gun on them. One of them shoots Clover and Clover returns fire, killing him. Then there is a standoff where Clover has his gun trained on the other guy who has a knife to Brian's neck. The guy throws Brian aside and pulls out a gun and points it at Clover. Then Brian pulls out his gun and he shoots the mugger. Brian tells Clover that his intention is to avenge the death of Stephen's wife, Meredith, who Brian, whom Brian had also been in love with. He then basically asks Clover to let him avenge Meredith's death and let him go. Clover does so, much to the anger of Clip, who reads him the riot act, but then agrees to go with him to find Brian. They grab Heroica and Zeviera and head out in search of him. Brian lurks in the shadows and then heads to the Empire State Building and the offices of Doyle Communications Equipment. He asks to see a Julia Gardner, and when the receptionist tries to brush him off, he walks past her and goes into an office marked private. She calls security and they rush in while he's harassing this Julia woman. The security guards try to wrestle him down, but he pulls his gun and as he aims it at Julia, she confesses that she knows where Stephen is, especially considering that she was his mistress. She tells him that Stephen changed once he found Brian's letters that he had been writing to Meredith. Julia reveals that he has been hiding in the communications equipment room of the building's antenna. Brian finds Stephen and starts firing at him, but he misses. Stephen slashes Brian with a knife, and the two argue over why Stephen did it, with Stephen talking about how Brian was taking, away Mer- was taking Meredith away from him, and that's why he killed her so Brian couldn't have him. Stephen approaches Brian and puts the knife to his throat as Clover reaches them with his gun. Stephen tells Brian to kill himself, finish the job that he started. Brian grabs a live electrical cable and then grabs Stephen, killing them both. On the streets below, Clover tells Clip, I don't think I can do this anymore, Clip. Why are we beating our heads against the same stinking wall every day? What's the point? Where's the feeling of accomplishment? His questions are interrupted by the night prowler, who speeds up just to drive through a puddle and splash all of them. Clover, having had enough, insists on driving. Clip says, I thought you'd lost your sense of purpose, Clover. Now you're going to be the first cop to catch the night prowler? 
I may not catch him, Clover says, but he's going to know he's been chased. Get in. And this issue, by the way, is, is dedicated with respect and admiration to Robert Kaniger. Okay, now, there's this whole idea of Clover seeing someone he knew from his childhood being the perpetrator of a terrible crime, and there's this priest angle and the drama surrounding his ultimate fate, and I, I thought it was a little bit heavy-handed. Fleming could have kept this to just two brothers and a woman behind them, between them, and it still would have worked out well, especially if Clover had felt that he was caught in the middle. It actually would have been a decent character moment for him, but we unfortunately don't get enough of that. So the last issue of the series is a bit of a letdown, although I'm still enjoyed Underworld as a whole, and I wish that we could have had more than just what we got. I love the idea that we would keep getting these cops' stories day in and day out, along with the city itself as a character. In fact, I think this would have been well-suited for a larger graphic novel presentation as opposed to the four-issue miniseries we have. Perhaps more story would have given him the opportunity to really grow these characters and maybe even have them catch the Night Prowler. Plus, I think that it would really have made the artwork look better. Clone's art is exceptional throughout, although I will admit that the art and coloring in issue 4 seem a little bit rushed. Still, had this been on better paper... Perhaps it would have even looked grittier, more real, something that the book excels at, and something I definitely need to give credit to both Adrian Roy and Jerry Serpy for doing with the tools that they had at the time. So, while this has no chance to get collected anywhere anytime soon, and to my knowledge is not on any digital format, I would recommend this grabbing this when you find it in a cheapy bin. That's where I got it. I saw an ad for it in, in a comic book from around 1987, and I went to my LCS, and it was sitting, all four issues were sitting right there in the 50-cent bin. So this is a pretty pretty solid get for just looking for it on a whim. So if you come across it in, in the cheap bins, the quarter bins, Alan, pick it up. It's, it's worth at least the, the dollar or $2 that you might pay for it. Now, the question stemming from that is, is Marvel's offering from a few years later, worth the money. We're going to find that out next episode when I cover Cops the Job. Until then, please feel free to leave a comment on the Facebook page or on the blog post, the show notes for this episode. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. So come back for part two. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Lord,